So this is the first um, uh, seminar. Uh, will be there'll be a total of six, and this one will focus on the idea of uh, experience. Now, what I'll be doing from this point on each morning is offering you a, a sketch of what a secular uh, understanding or perspective on the Dhamma might look like. Uh, this is somewhat experimental because although we might use the word secular Buddhism, that is still a very long way off from being uh, clearly defined. Different people will use it in quite different ways. Now that, of course, also, I think, is a considerable advantage because there's, as it were, an open field here that we can begin not only to explore, admittedly somewhat tentatively, but also to actually create, to build up. And so through these talks, and hopefully also through our discussions in the afternoon and through Martin's Dharma talks in the evening, we'll be seeking, as it were, to present uh, an overview and hopefully a detailed and complex one of what a secular Buddhism might look like. Now, I'd like to, to start by just trying to emphasize a particular perspective that um, I'll be taking uh, throughout these talks. And that is a perspective that I feel is rather central to a secular uh, approach to Buddhism. It's one that is concerned with uh, doing something rather than believing something. In other words, I'm not interested in uh, presenting Buddhism as something you have to believe or disbelieve. In other words, <coughs> as a set of propositions or truth claims that we are then confronted with the question, well, do I believe that or not? Is it true that life is suffering? Do I believe that or not? And if I believe it, that's often thought to be the entry gate to being a good Buddhist. If I don't believe it, then I have no business calling myself a Buddhist. Now we'll keep coming back to this, uh, to this particular distinction. I'm interested in a Buddhism that is praxis-based, not belief-based. In other words, it's about offering us a, uh, a set of um, suggestions, a set of practices, a set of tools, a set of values that we are, as it were, primarily concerned to put into practice and live out to see whether they work or not, rather than feeling that we need to assent to certain uh, doctrinal uh, opinions, like, for example, the doctrine of rebirth, the traditional doctrine of karma, different realms of existence, 
uh, the different magical powers, the Idis, that the Buddhas and the Bodhisattvas apparently have, and so on. So in this sense, um, we can also talk of a practice that is based upon reading these uh, Buddhist texts that I'm going to be sharing with you, always in terms of there being uh, prescriptions rather than descriptions. I don't think the Buddha actually was terribly interested in uh, giving us a final uh, authoritative description of the nature of reality or the nature of truth. It's certainly the case that Buddhism in its various forms that have evolved since his time have become uh, you know, schools or traditions or orthodoxies that claim to be presenting the truth or what reality is actually about. Whereas I think there's a considerable amount of evidence that suggests that the Buddha was concerned not with those sorts of metaphysical uh, issues, like is it true that we're reborn after death, for example, but he was concerned with how we can um, respond to the human condition, which is loosely summed up in the term dukkha, which I won't translate, how can we respond to that in a way that does not leave us caught up in our habitual reactive patterns of attachment, of fear, of greed, of hatred, and so on, but allows us to uh, respond to dukkha, to life, really, in a way that opens up the possibility of um, a greater flourishing of our capacity as human beings at every level. We'll come back to this later. This is really understood in the shorthand of the Noble Eightfold Path. The way we see the world, think about it, speak, act, work, make effort, pay attention, concentrate. In other words, a practice that entails all of our existence from the most intimate, private thoughts to the way we interact and engage with others in the workplace. So, in other words, I'm going to try to present all of these ideas and, and uh, texts in terms of there being prescriptions to do something rather than descriptions of the nature of reality. So this is going to be a prescriptive approach, not a descriptive approach. So the question is not so much when we read a, a passage from the suttas, you know, is that true or is that false? But to think of it in terms of, could I practice that and what effects might it have? In other words, it's pragmatic, therapeutic, rather than uh, doctrinal or metaphysical or um, about a truth claim of any kind. And let me start with a passage from the uh, Sangyutta Nikaya, which I feel supports this idea, where the Buddha says, Monks, I do not dispute with the world. Rather, it is the world that disputes with me. 
a proponent of the Dhamma does not dispute with anyone in the world of that which the wise in the world agree upon as not existing, I too say that it does not exist. And of that which the wise in the world agree upon as existing, I too say that it exists. Now this is a curious passage and the meaning is not entirely evident, I feel. The way I would read it is that the Buddha is saying here, I'm not actually interested in, <clears throat> in the nature of, of, of reality, in the nature of what um, is true or false in the nature of the world. But rather, I'm interested in something else altogether. I'm interested in how we can live in the world, how we can make a difference in the quality of our response to life, the quality of our our thinking, our behaving, our interacting, and we'll go along with pretty much what the wise, the pandita, the pandits, what the wise at our point in time and history have concluded seems to be the case. So at the Buddha's time, this would have been those who um, uh, were expert in the uh, the vidya, the, the sciences of the Buddha's time, who would, for example, have put forth an understanding of the world as comprised of many different rebirths driven by karma with the idea that salvation is freeing oneself from such a cycle of birth and death. Um, that's what the wise believed at the Buddha's time. The Buddha pretty much went along with it. Now, of course, if we translate that into our modern world, then the wise, the pandita, might include um, biologists and physicists and psychologists and others who have made a, you know, maybe dedicated their lives to trying to get clearer and a better, more uh, credible understanding of how the natural world works. And if we understand this passage correctly, the Buddha is saying, well, whatever they've come up with, that's fine. We can go along with that. It doesn't actually affect what it is that I'm teaching. And I think the reason is, is because the Buddha's teaching is not about description. It's not claiming to offer an accurate, correct description of the world. It's concerned with how we act in the world, how we behave, how we live, how we uh, uh, think, and so on. Uh, this, of course, is clear... Um, in the famous parable of the arrow, where the Buddha describes a man who's been shot by a poisoned arrow, but he won't, the, the man who's been shot won't let a surgeon remove the arrow until he knows the name of the person who shot it, until he knows whether it was shot by a longbow or a crossbow, until he knows whether the feathers on the arrow were of a peacock or a hawk or a crow. Uh, it's teased out ad absurdum. And the Buddha says, well, of course, you know, he'd, he could spend days, weeks getting that information, and meantime, he would die. And in the same way, he says, if someone refuses to practice the Dhamma until I tell them whether the world is infinite or finite or has a beginning, has an end, whether the mind and the body are the same or different, whether one exists after death or not, one could go on forever debating those questions, and in the meantime, you will die. 
I think this is a very clear case of uh, a teaching that is concerned with doing something, in this case removing the arrow, rather than getting caught up in speculations about um, the person who shot it, etc., etc., or in the Buddha's case, metaphysical questions. The Buddha was very prescient, in fact, in that the sort of questions that he refused to comment on two and a half thousand years ago are still being discussed today. We now call it the mind-body problem, or people are still debating rebirth, as we know, or the, whether the universe is finite or infinite. All of these things are still being discussed, and that's not really um, what the Buddha is interested in addressing. Now, I think this is a, a difficult point because there is a deep human longing to know these things. And religion, whether it be Christian or Buddhist or Muslim, has very often evolved in human societies to answer those kinds of questions. And in fact, pretty much all of the questions the Buddha refused to respond to, the different schools of Buddhism today have got answers for. So we can see that tendency. And so what I feel is, is helpful is to try to get back to this um, original idea and seek to, in a sense, imagine Buddhism from the ground up. Perhaps we could even say uh, to start again. So if the Buddha isn't interested in reality, if he's not interested in truth, you know, what is he interested in? What term might be helpful here? And I think a term that would be useful is experience. Experience. Okay, what's the difference? Experience is a term we would use. There is no exact Pali equivalent. Experience, or we might even say life. In other words, what is actually happening in our sensory, our mental, our emotional life right now, not just subjectively, but also in terms of our relationships with others, in terms of our uh, presence in the environment, what it is that we're experiencing. The Buddha is concerned with experience. And in that way, I think he's making a very radical break with the religious traditions of his day. Now, those of you who are familiar with uh, Vedanta, and particularly, let's say, some of the Upanishads, which were the classical uh, Brahminic uh, doctrines that were already current at the Buddha's time, when they talk of meditation practice, or spiritual practice, tapas, it's very much about um, detaching oneself from any identification with the physical world, any identification with your body, any identification with your thoughts or your feelings, and progressively turning your attention inwards until you arrive at something which is beyond sensory consciousness, mental consciousness sleep consciousness even, dream consciousness, until you get what is called Turiya in some of the Upanishads, which means um, a, a state of consciousness that is no longer 
determined by anything within what we would call our experience. It's to regain um, a kind of intuitive uh, absorption in what is called Atman. Um, difficult to translate, soul, self, but not in the conventional meaning of that term, but that innermost uh, transcendent divine consciousness that is identical with the consciousness of God. And so when you read the Upanishads and you look at the practices, it's very much about um, seeking to return to this primordial state of unconditioned awareness. So that when you die, you are no longer identified with your body, your feelings, your thoughts, but you are able to absorb your attention into the permanent eternal reality of God. And that is liberation. Now, obviously, I've summarized that very, very briefly. And if you study these texts, it's a little bit more complicated than that. But that does seem to be the primary um, uh, focus. And in fact, we see in the Buddha's own story that before he became the Buddha, he studied with two teachers, one called uh, Udaka Ramaputta and another called um, something else I forget for the moment. And they taught him deep levels of absorb absorptive concentration. And I think what these practices probably were, were similar to these um, uh, attempts in the Upanishads to return to discover the ultimate reality of God. They subsequently got picked up as the seventh and the eighth jhana. Um, but nonetheless, they're deep states of inward-looking concentration that have nothing to do with our experience of phenomenal life. And the Buddha rejected them. He said, these are not the way to uh, understanding what I'm seeking to understand. And so it's after that that he then sits beneath the Bodhi tree and so on. Now when he comes to teach meditation, um, he's doing, he presents something that's very much at odds with uh, what would have been considered to be meditation in his day. Rather than turning the attention inwards into the deepest uh, sources of your own consciousness, he <coughs> instructs his monks, his followers, to turn their attention outward. And so in the Satipatthana Sutta, for example, we have this famous passage where he says, a monk is one who acts in full awareness when going forward and coming back who acts in full awareness when looking ahead and looking away, who acts in full awareness when flexing and extending his limbs, who acts in full awareness when wearing his robes and carrying his bowl, who acts in full awareness when eating, drinking, consuming and tasting, who acts in full awareness when defecating and urinating, who acts in full awareness when walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep, waking up, talking and keeping silence. Now this is a very, very different understanding of what constitutes uh, meditation. It's about 
paying attention to the most mundane things of the world. It must have been very shocking at his time. And I think in some respect it's even shocking to us today. You know, a, a, a monk is one who acts in full awareness when he's shitting and pissing. Which is as far as you can get from the divine consciousness of Atman. <laughs> and yet this is where the attention is focused. And here I think we have uh, very much um, a shift to a secular vision as opposed to the religious vision that is achieved by gaining intuitive identification with God. It's as though uh, the Buddha in a way breaks with that transcendent, um, eternal quest for God or whatever surrogate you might name, you know, the unconditioned or the deathless or the non-dual or um, pure consciousness and instead goes right back to the body and the breath and the ordinary tasks of day-to-day -day experience. In other words, he, he, he focuses our attention on the world. In its changing, it's unsatisfying sometimes, it's tragic, it's painful, it's somewhat impersonal, it's messy, and that's where we ground our mindfulness and ground our attention. We find a passage also, um, and once again it's in the Sanyutta Nikaya, the connected discourses of the Buddha, in which he describes what he means by everything. The word in Pali is, is sabha, all, literally. And here too I think we get a very um, a very clear uh, statement as to the fact that the Buddha is interested in our experience that's happening now, not in any higher truth or reality that might be believed to underlie it or cause it or transcend it or whatever. Uh, this is the text. Monks, I will teach you the all. Listen to this. And what, monks, is the all, the eye and forms, the ear and sounds, the nose and smells, the tongue and tastes, the body and tactile sensations, the mind and dhammas. Dhammas means ideas, it means subjective feelings, uh, anything that we are aware of that's not mediated through the physical senses. This, he says, is called the all, everything. If anyone, monk, should say, I reject this all, I will make known another all, that would be a mere empty boast on his part. If he were questioned about this, he wouldn't be able to reply, and further he would meet with vexation. He'd get himself tangled up in knots. Why? Because, monks, that all would not be within his domain. One translator says, would not be within his sensorium. In other words, it wouldn't be something that can be seen, or heard, or smelt, or taste, or touched or known directly through mental awareness. 
And of course, all of the things that are included in that all are transient, they're impermanent, they're dukkha, and they are not essentially me or mine. So this is the Buddha's vision of the all. If you posit something beyond that, something greater than, other than, you're basically talking about something that you don't actually know anything about. You're making what he calls an empty boast. So, once again, we come back to um, the all. In other words, primarily our sensory and uh, mental experience that is happening right now. And that when we sit in meditation, whether we're sitting or walking, and we're cultivating mindfulness, we're cultivating awareness of what we can know already, what we can know directly. This is not to say that you know, we understand things in a deep way, but this is where we start, this is where we pursue our inquiry, this is where we cultivate mindfulness and attention. And the, the insights that uh, the Buddha is concerned with are not insights into something that transcends that, something other, but insights that are arrived at through a far deeper appreciation and uh, wisdom and understanding of what's actually happening to us right now. And yet so often, and I think again this is a deep human tendency, we have this sense, but that can't be, that, it, there must be more than this. There must be more than what's going on now. There must be some higher or absolute reality. And of course Buddhism has slipped into this way of thinking too. Uh, one of the most uh, striking examples of the, of, the, of, the, of the reintroduction of a kind of transcendent thinking is the um, doctrine of the two truths, uh, paramata satcha and samuti satcha, ultimate truth, relative truth, or conventional truth, which is a teaching you find in all schools of Buddhism, in the Theravada school, in the Tibetan schools, in the Zen schools, and it's so central to much of what we consider Buddhist philosophy and teaching um, that it's become just taken for granted as a fundamental Buddhist uh, way of looking at the world. What is striking is that when you go back to the earliest canonical sources uh, in the Pali Canon or in the Chinese Agamas, which are a translation of a similar body of material, nowhere do you find these terms being used. And nowhere does the Buddha use the word ultimate truth or relative truth. It's just not there, completely absent. And it's not as though he has some other way of saying the same thing. What is striking is that uh, uh, his teaching is one that doesn't think in that sort of way. It doesn't suggest that there is some deeper truth somehow lying out of reach or beneath the ordinary world. It's particularly striking when um, that was a way of thinking that was very characteristic of the Upanishads. The Upanishads spoke of the ultimate reality of God, Brahman, this primary unity uh, that is transcendent, is beyond this world in a way. And then it spoke of the phenomenal world itself, which it considered to be maya, illusory. 
Another point is the Buddha never says anywhere that the world is illusory. So you have already at the Buddha's time a distinction of an ultimate truth and the mere relative or conventional truth of the world. And the Buddha doesn't present his teachings in that way at all. Subsequently, Buddhism introduces that way of thinking. Why? Well, I don't know, but I would, I would propose because, um, at least in India, um, the Buddhists must have somehow felt not in tune with the um, traditional way of thinking about religious matters. And there was a gradual slippage over the centuries back into the discourse of um, classical Indian thought. Uh, the first time that we find a mention of the two truth doctrine is actually in a text called the, the Melinda Panha, uh, the questions of King Melinda. It's in the Pali Canon. Uh, and it, it's, a, it's a record of a dialogue between a Buddhist monk and a Greek, an Indo-Greek king called Mananda. And that would have occurred about 300 years after the Buddha. But before then, the two truths are just not on the landscape at all. I think the uh, sound system, is the green light still on? No, it's gone red. Okay. Do you want to use this? Glad to be rid of that thing, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, if you can hear me, then we we'll won't bother with the microphones. Uh, where was I? Okay, now, what has all of this got to do with Nama, Rupa, Vijnana and Self? What it has to do is that Nama, Rupa, Vijnana, which I'll explain tomorrow, is basically a more um, expanded version of the all. What I'm doing is I'm laying out the context in which the Buddha then subsequently develops into a much more precise analysis of the all. In other words, of the experience that we're having right now. And he also calls this the five aggregates, which I'm sure anyone who's picked up a book on Buddhism will have heard of, which is another way of parsing our experience. The five aggregates are materiality, which has to do with our bodies, it has to do with what we see and smell and taste and touch, feelings, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, perceptions, the, the way we make sense of our experience, uh, inclinations, the way we then respond and react to experience, and consciousness, which is the overall awareness uh, that brings all of those elements into a coherent whole. So we're going to look at all of that again later. I'm not going to develop it now. But the idea of the all is basically another way of saying the same thing. So that pretty much everything that the Buddha uh, uses as a means to, to uh, give us a picture of the world um, concerns experience. And that's going to be a very major theme that will run through the talks uh, this week. Now another expression he uses to describe uh, the all or the five aggregates, or Nama Rupa Vijnana, is um, the word loka, 
the world, loka, L-O-K-A. Uh, this is a term that we find right throughout the early canonical texts. And it, in fact, is a cognate of the uh, English word location or locality. In England, young men say, I'm going to go down the local. <laughs> little do they know that they are uttering a cognate of a Pali word. <laughs> local, loca, same word. It means place, literally. Lo locus in Latin, uh, location, locomotive. Now, this is translated usually as the world. And the problem with that translation is that it suggests that um, there is the world that we read about in the newspapers or the world that's all around us. And it somehow excludes what's going on in our own subjective experience. In fact, the world tends to be opposed to me. But the way the Buddha understands the world is um, it doesn't assume that dualistic split. Uh, there's a passage uh, somewhere in the Sangyutta Nikaya where the Buddha says, we use this word loka, loka. What do we mean by loka, world? And he replies, lujati, lujati. That is the world. Now, what does that mean? Lujati means it passes, it passes. That is the world. It passes. Now, in French, you say, c'est ce qui se passe, which means, literally, it's that which passes. But it means, in everyday French, it means it's what's happening. Okay, so the world is what's happening. And that means what's happening out there in Syria. It also means what's happening in here, in my innermost thoughts and feelings. It's what's happening right now. And again, the practice of mindfulness might start with the body and the feelings, um, but it extends in the end to all Dhamma, all things. So in other words, the practice of mindfulness is a practice of expanding our attention to include, include everything within the world, the loka that we're in. There's a very famous passage, um, which is often quoted, where again the Buddha describes what he means by the world. And he says, It is, friend, in just this fathom-high carcass, endowed with perception and mind, that I make known the world the arising of the world, the ceasing of the world, and the path. So in other words, again, I feel this is a very uh, clear uh, recognition that what he's concerned with is the experience that is happening within this physical organism. And that's not just what's going on inside it, but also whatever is presented to it. Whatever we see and hear and smell and taste and touch, whatever we think about, whatever we feel, whatever we are aware of as emotion, that is the world. At least that's the world in the way 
the Buddha is using that uh, term. So we've actually now presented a whole range of ideas that are more or less different ways of looking at the same thing. We have the idea of the all, we have the idea of the five aggregates or khandas or bundles, we have the idea that we'll look at tomorrow of nama rupa vijnana, nama rupa and consciousness. It's another way of looking at it, perhaps the most complex way of looking at it. We have the idea of the world, of what's happening. But all of these terms are basically different ways of uh, uh, making sense of or referring to experience. The experience that's actually occurring in this moment and is rising and passing and rising and passing continuously. Now I'm now going to jump to um, a, t a text that is not Buddhist at all, but I feel sheds a light on experience that you don't really find so much in the early Pali canonical materials. You do find this way of looking at things in Zen, but not so much in the Indian tradition. But I feel it's a rather important uh, uh, element that in some ways is missing. In some ways it makes early Buddhism sometimes appear a bit dry and analytical. And the text that I'm going to read to you now is from the, um, the Roman poet uh, Lucretius. Now Lucretius lived um, about 50 BC at the very end of the Roman Republic in Italy. Um, he's only known as the author of um, a 7,000-line poem called uh, De Natura Rerum, On the Nature of Things. Um, it was discovered, it was thought lost, uh, it was rediscovered in the 15th century by a wandering monk in Germany. It was found in an old monastery there somewhere. Uh, the story of which has actually recently been written up in a book called The Swerve, yeah. by Stephen Greenblatt. It's, it's, very, very, it's a very good book. Now, Lucretius belonged to the school of philosophy uh, which was founded by Epicurus. He was an Epicurean. Epicurus lived about a hundred years after the Buddha in Athens and founded a school that was very influential for about five or six centuries. Now, the interesting thing about Epicurus is that um, he was a thoroughgoing materialist. Uh, for Epicurus, only two things existed, atoms and void. In other words, the space within which atoms move. And the whole of experience was generated by the movement of atoms in the void. Um, and the title of the book, The Swerve, has to do with... Epicurus's belief that atoms occasionally swerved. They did weird things and that's what generated the possibility for endless diversity in the uh, formation of living organisms and, uh, and life forms. Now this is a, a materialism for sure but it's one that is founded in a philosophy 
that is concerned with the healing of the soul. Epicurus, like many of his contemporaries, the Stoics, even Aristotle, uh, believed that philosophy was not some discipline that you studied at university and got a PhD in, but was actually a practice, very much as the Buddha saw his teaching. It's a practice that if it does not make a difference in the quality of your life, or what he said, the healing of your soul, then it is worthless. So Epicurus created uh, communities which were founded on friendship. For him, one of the great virtues is friendship. They lived a life of simplicity, and they engaged in uh, spiritual exercises that sought to bring them into a deeper understanding of the phenomenal world within an ethical system. Now, I feel in many ways, early Buddhism particularly, is closer to the philosophy of Epicurus and the Stoics and the Pyrrhonists than it is, say, to Christianity. And that um, we've rather for, we've lost those traditions in the West. They were suppressed in about the 5th or 6th century by the Church. And they've been largely forgotten. They were recovered in the Renaissance period. And people like Montaigne, in particular, considered themselves to be followers of Lucretius and Piro and the Stoics, and they sought to revive that secular tradition. So if we look at Buddhism from a secular point of view, then rather than, as it were, engage in a dialogue with our religious traditions, we should perhaps consider looking into the sources of our own secular spiritual traditions, and I would say a main, a primary contender for this would be Epicureanism. Now this is a, a passage from uh, Lucretius in the second book, which is called The Dance of the Atoms. Uh, it's a wonderful uh, uh, work, by the way. Uh, it's written with an incredible um, poetic uh, sensibility and uh, passion. And let me just read you this passage. Behold the pure blue of the heavens and all that they possess, the roving stars, the moon, the sun's light, brilliant and sublime. Imagine if these were shown to men for the very first time, suddenly and with no warning. What could be declared more wondrous than these miracles no one before had dared believe could even exist? Nothing. Nothing could be quite as remarkable as this. So wonderful would be the sight. Now, however, people hardly bother to lift their eyes to the glittering heavens. They are so accustomed to the skies. Now, this passage to me um, is, is very resonant with the actual experience of doing mindfulness and awareness forms of meditation. That what I feel is, um, uh, is brought forth in these practices is a, an experience of the everyday sublime. In other words, a waking up 
to the extraordinary experience of being here at all, of being able to see and hear and smell and taste and touch. Everything the Buddha described as the all seems to be exactly what Lucretius is pointing to as well. That um, the mystical vision is not about gaining some privileged insight in something transcendent or beyond, but rather discovering that the most miraculous of all experiences is the one we're having now. And this, of course, comes back to this notion of, of experience. The, the trouble is that because of our attachments and fears and egoism and grudges and clinging to security and all of these, um, these instincts and drives, we've actually um, somehow shut ourselves off. We've become anesthetized and numbed to the fact of what's going on now. And as Lucretia says, nowadays people hardly bother to lift their eyes to the glittering heavens. Nowadays, meaning 50 BC, remember? <laughs> Things have not changed much. Um, again, the image is very powerful. We kind of look down, we don't look at anything, we go through life on a kind of automatic pilot, and we're so accustomed to the skies, to the sound of the cicadas, to the colors of the trees. We just don't notice them anymore. And I feel that this emphasis here uh, adds, I feel, a rather vital uh, component to the experience of, um, of what the Buddha's teaching in the practice of mindful awareness. You know, defecating, urinating, going forward, coming back in full awareness. Again, I feel the Buddha's teachings are very much about providing us with a set of instructions or practices, things to do, but he doesn't actually say much about you know, what it's like to experience the world that way, which I feel is also uh, a certain confirmation that these teachings are really like instructions rather than descriptions of what it's like to follow those instructions. Um, and I think in some elements in the Western tradition, uh, we get, as it were, um, a more poetic um, articulation uh, of a world that is experienced from that kind of perspective. But I'd like to conclude today by going back to a text in the Pali Canon that I think is very much close or very much on this wavelength that we find in Lucretius. And again, it somehow uh, challenges certain assumptions we have about Buddhism being obsessed with suffering. Uh, this is a text, again, in the Sangyutta Nikaya. Pretty much everything I've quoted, everything I've quoted is from the Sangyutta Nikaya, the connected discourses of the Buddha. We can discuss that later this afternoon, if you wish. Okay, this is the passage. When I was still a bodhisattva, in other words, someone still aspiring for enlightenment, it occurred to me, what is the delight of experience? What is the tragedy of experience? What is the emancipation of experience? This is the Buddha speaking. Then, monks, it occurred to me, 
the happiness and joy that arise conditioned by experience, that is the delight of experience. That life is impermanent, a dukkha, and changing, that is the tragedy of experience. The removal and abandonment of grasping for experience, that is the emancipation of experience. And it was not until I had fully understood the delight, the tragedy, and the emancipation of experience that I could consider myself to have attained a peerless awakening in this world. Now what I feel is striking about this uh, passage is that it suggests that um, the experience of awakening is complex. It has to do with recognizing what is joyous and delightful in experience, recognizing what is tragic in experience, and recognizing what it is that um, constrains and, in a sense, blocks us um, from living our lives fully. And that he calls chandaraga, which we can translate perhaps as grasping. What do I say here? Yeah, grasping for experience. So, again, the notion here of awakening is not about gaining some privileged insight into some ultimate truth, like emptiness or the mind or selflessness or nibbana. These terms are not even mentioned. But rather it's about um, a, a radical reorientation of one's current experience here and now. It's, it, it's not about recognizing that everything in experience is dukkha. Uh, it's recognizing that um, experience is full of joy. It's full of pleasure. And there's no problem with that. At the same time, though, it's not so naive as to recognize that life does not have a tragic dimension. All of those things that we enjoy and appreciate are changing. They're going to die. They're going to dissolve. They're going to become something else. So there's that element as well. And what is it, worth, what is it that inhibits a full embrace and, a, 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 in a way, an opening to what experience uh, is all about is the fact that we're constantly grasping at what we like, a grasping to get rid of what we don't like, getting into a kind of egotistic, conflict with experience, trying to manipulate it and control it so that it conforms to what I want and what I don't want, once we can let go of that grasping or craving it's sometimes called, then we experience emancipation, liberation, freedom. Freedom is not something that is a freedom from the world, but it's a freedom that we find by letting go of a certain attitude, a certain holding or clinging or grasping vis-a-vis -vis the world. And when we let go of that holding, we can embrace the joys and the tragedy of life in an open and in a, an equanimous way.
I feel that in many uh, ways this is close to an account of how we appreciate great art. Um, that art which is not just merely entertainment or decoration uh, very often uh, includes not just a sense of the joy or the richness of, uh, of experience but also of its dark tragic nature. Um, there's a big difference between going and watching a performance of, of King Lear or Hamlet than going and watching um, Mamma Mia or some, <laughs> some you know, comedy mu musical on Broadway. It, unfortunately, uh, Buddhism has, has, in a sense, because of its involvement and identification with the Indian renunciant tradition, um, has tended towards a rather negative view of worldly enjoyment. And I think one of the um, uh, elements that will perhaps be more prominent in a secular approach to the Dharma is one that doesn't start on the presumption that life is suffering. We're going to come back to this later in, in the week. But is premised more on the kind of texts such as this one that again can resonate very much with the vision that we find in Lucretius, for example. Um, in other words, to somehow let go of this insistence on everything being a veil of tears. But without, of course, denying that. Uh, to me, the great beauty of, um, say, Rembrandt's portraits, or uh, the late Schubert's sonatas, or uh, Shakespeare's plays, um, is that they are able to um, embrace both the darkness and the light, the joy and the tragedy of experience. And I think at their best, they're able to um, lead us away from a kind of self-centered wanting and not wanting, but are able to suspend those habits of mind through the power of the of, 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 of the imagery or the music or the uh, theatrical performance such that we experience something that the romantic poets called uh, the sublime. I think Lucretius too is talking very much of the experience of the sublime and I feel that the practice of mindfulness and awareness on a retreat like this is also opening us to the experience of the sublime. Uh, the sublime is traditionally understood as um, a frame of mind in which there is both fascination and terror in the same moment. For example, at a very powerful storm. It's fascinating but kind of scary. And I feel that when we go deeply into this sort of meditation practice, we do encounter things that are un deeply uncomfortable we encounter some deep insecurities and anxieties perhaps about death. But at the same time, the world opens up as something almost infinitely fascinating. So somehow I feel we could try to bring some of these different threads, both from uh, the early Pali Canon, as I've been quoting here, 
but also um, reading them from our own cultural perspective, our own traditions, some of which have been forgotten, and thereby perhaps arriving at a way of practicing the Dharma that's not just about repeating how Buddhism has been done in Asia, but bringing to it um, another perspective that I feel is both rooted in the early canon and at the same time um, acknowledges and values elements from within our own uh, Western tradition as well. So I'll stop here now and tomorrow I'm going to um, address the theme of this week which is Nama Rupa and Vijnana or consciousness and that will be seen to be again just teasing out of what we've looked at today in a way that's not only more detailed but also provides us with I think some valuable tools that we can incorporate into our practice of meditation. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.